0: what is up guys taiki here or welcome to episode nine of the crypto market wizards podcast today i have here with me daryl or 0x wingarian on twitter how are you doing today
1: what's up taiki it's nice to chat we haven't chat we haven't chatted in almost two years so glad to be back i know
0: i know the last time i had you on i'm just gonna screen share here it was february of 2022 at the top of the bull market uh this video did numbers 20,000 views um and you kind of talked about where we are in the cycle, psychology, um, how to view the markets and whatnot. Um, So we'll get into all of that. But the first thing I want to talk about is, well, the markets have been pumping. Uh, What's your take on the markets right now? Do you think next year is going to be bullish? What do you think?
1: Yeah, so I think long term, we're we're pretty constructive on where the crypto market is going to go. And when I say long term, I'm thinking six months or more out. Um, I typically tend to split my my frameworks into low, medium and high time frame. So high time frame were definitely bullish. We've been bullish really since uh the start of twenty twenty-three. Um I think on the shorter time frames, uh we're in a bit of a dicier situation simply because you know BDC has moved up from 25k to 44k in a very rapid amount of time. Um and hasn't really consolidated materially. And so I think we're experiencing some of that now. Hopefully, we don't, uh, you know, drop back down to key levels, but I think even if we do, we should still be fine. Um, but yeah, I think low to midterm, I think the event that we need to look out for is really the ETF approval, uh, the positioning and the price action that goes into it. Uh, and immediately after it, it's going to be very, very important to dictate how Q1 is going to go.
0: Yeah, how how do you think the ETF is gonna go? I mean, I think it's pretty much a lock that it's gonna be approved at this point. A lot of people think that it's gonna be sold on news, um, but you know the bid in the market is relentless. Um, and if the market is telling me, or if, if the tape is telling me to be bullish, uh, I feel like you can have to lean towards maybe not sell the news. Uh, do you think it? Like, what do you think about the ETF?
1: So I think if you look at historical events, typically for stru- for events like these it is almost always knee-jerk bearish, uh, simply because I think a lot of people, well, firstly, the the first line of thinking is uh, the ETF is going to be sell the news, so you sell into it, and then you you, you position defensively. And then the people that are trying to front-run that will start thinking, okay, everyone is bearish, let me long it. And then in general, most people still have a much more bullish bias. And so what what ends up happening is more people end up Thinking that other people are bearish and then therefore they go long, and then the market is still generally long. And then after the event happens, it actually does pay out to be bearish. Um, I think for something like the ETF, I think people need to remember as well that the confirmation of the ETF and the start of the inflows for the ETF is not instantaneous, right? There may be a couple of days to even a couple of weeks where the approval and the launch of the product. between the, the approval of the ETF and the launch of the product. So you have actually some, you can have some time where event is over. Uh, the people are expecting all the flows to come and then people realize, oh, wait, you know, we still have two three more weeks to wait. And then you actually have a pretty harsh sell-off there. That's a possibility. I think um, on the longer term, the ETF opens the doors for U.S. institutional funds to start buying with ease. Uh, I think the it's more it's not so much the access that is important, but more so the regulatory signal that BTC or crypto is now an asset class that the US regulators are welcoming, right? And for that reason, um, when liquidity flows improve in the US, that is going to be much. Well, we're going to see it much more in the form of uh, increased uh, BTC inflows uh, than before.
0: Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, so, but, I mean, we're five minutes in, but do you mind telling our audience, I guess, like what you do now? Um, yeah. Yes. For sure. uh, yeah.
1: So, so uh, I, I'm currently one of the co-founders of uh, Tangent, which is a multi-strategy prop fund. Uh, we primarily do, uh, we started off actually as a uh, an angel, invest, uh, angel investing syndicate between uh, myself, uh, my partner Jason, and a couple of uh, Web3 founders. Uh, the, the structure has slowly changed and now we are uh we've incorporated a number of strategies including you know low time frame trading, uh longer term spot accumulative uh you know uh holdings and then the lot the three to five year time horizon venture investments uh that most people know us for. So we're actually quite diversified in terms of strategy. Right now um I typically handle the lower time frame trading uh and Basically, the day-to-day uh, narrative chasing, and uh, my partner Jason, he handles you know the venture side of things.
0: Got it. Yeah. Speaking of uh, narrative chasing, um, I mean, we've seen alt L ones like Solana, even Avalanche, just putting crazy moves. What do you think the next cycle looks like? Do you think it's going to look the exact same as last cycle with meme coins, alt L ones, or do you think that you know this time around it has to be like the real products, right, like the actual use case products that's going to do well like what's your take on what the next cycle looks like
1: so i think in the absence of i think what we've been seeing now is really still just sidelined capital sidelined crypto native capital coming back into the market i don't think you've actually seen material retail flows coming back in with the exception of like one or two names particularly maybe like bonk for example and solana or uh maybe the brc20 meme coins um Driven by Chinese flows, I think. Besides this, you don't really see random trash pumping just yet, which means that retail really hasn't hit the market um, so far. And this is indicative of like you know uh, the Coinbase app popularity in terms of the app store rankings. This is indicative of like Google Trends, um, just as a proxy of like how many of your friends who were previously in crypto um, have started texting you again. A lot of them are like you know realizing that crypto is not dead. They haven't really come back in yet, uh, but you know we're sort of that at that inflection point where we hope that they do. Um, right now, it's not clear that they that that they will come back. Uh, but you know we, we certainly have our fingers crossed.
0: Got it. So you still think that we're relatively early, and you know you mentioned you you know do short term trades, medium to longer term spot holds. What kind yeah. of narratives and sectors are you bullish on in 2024?
1: So the, the way that we split it up is um, anything under a month, um, you know, I typically trade uh, with a different framework, right? So we're basically optimizing for uh, entry levels, and then you are looking to scalp things uh, for, you know, and anything between a 10 to like a 50% move, right? These are not, and ideally you're probably trading on like decentralized exchanges for, with, with coins that are a bit more liquid. And then you move past a month, uh, and then we start focusing a lot more on thesis-oriented, thesis-driven bets, where we have, where we typically focus on uh, from a top-down perspective. So we have uh, particular views on you know specific verticals that we want to get exposure to, and then within those verticals, what we try and find the top two or three uh, best candidates that we think will outperform. Um, And then we try and hold that for a 612, maybe even 18 month duration to let the thesis play out through the cycle. Uh, So that, as you can see, obviously these two different uh, trading styles uh, require vastly different frameworks. You cannot sort of be trading uh, an illiquid shitcoin and hope to be scalping it for 20%. Uh, And obviously you also cannot be you know buying something like avex and hold and holding it for a 20 or 20x or zero right it doesn't really work that way um but uh, as for us right now uh, i think the very obvious uh well a, a couple of, of verticals that we are optimistic on is uh number one i think alternative l1s i still think are in the play just because of how comfortable people are with the narrative so i think solana is definitely the mainstay there uh, you're probably going to have one or two Uh, newer coins come up uh, that may challenge Solana for that spot, Uh, and we we all know that the market likes newer coins in general. Uh, Apart from that, I think, uh, you know, evergreen AI is a super brainless bet. Um, It's been touted before, uh, and I will tout it again. And the reason why I do is because AI is one of those verticals where you are in a PVE environment, not a PVP environment. And I will contrast that actually with uh, derivative dexes and DeFi as a vertical that I think on paper sounds bullish f- when trading volumes increase, but I think will do very poorly relative to these other verticals simply because of how many different competitors there are, how much focus and scrutiny there is in terms of com- you know USPs between the different dexes, and like everyone chasing x amount of margin. Uh, or X amount of flows from retail that it, it really hasn't really been picking up. So uh, I think AI is one of those sectors where you can just find something that you think is a cult. Um, the team is not a scam. You think that the team, there is potential for something real to be built, and then you just take a position and, you, and then you monitor how it goes. So AI is one of those um, categories. I think another one that is very PVE is BRC20s. Um, right now, it's been going through a very hot leg uh, up. Um, I think this is what I call the inception leg, where people for the first time realize, you know, hey, you know, this is something that is net new. Uh, infrastructure is not built to support a lot of these things. Uh, people are still scrambling how to figure and figuring out how to do stuff on chain. Um, it reminds me a lot of a DeFi summer in twenty twenty. Uh, and I do think, well, firstly, I do think uh, a lot of these things are going to die um, when the, the, the media comes down, but they're not going to uh, be gone forever. Uh, I, I do think one one prediction for me is that in 2024, you're going to have a BRC. You're going to see BRCs die for one, right? Uh, that, that, that's pretty clear because everything is pretty overheated. Uh, but after a maybe three, six, nine month sort of you know, consolidation phase, they're going to come back and they're going to they're going to come back with a vengeance and so i do think uh, brc20s will probably 10x in market cap from here that's my interesting bet.
0: yeah i i like the way you frame let's say ai and brc20s as pve where if you expect retail inflows you expect capital to flow there because it's new and shiny and yes. You can just make some bets there and just wait for retail to come. And then yes. you know, you'll be a big benefactor. Whereas DeFi, um, it kind of pains me because I'm a DeFi bull at heart, uh, where maybe DeFi is more mature uh, and the tokens there are more PVP. Um, is that kind of your framework? You just think, okay, like DeFi is PVP. It's a little too hard to pick the winners. Let me just play where the pasture is greener and you know, look into AI coins. Um, and you mentioned you know, AI coins where the team isn't a scam. Um, it, like how do you find good AI coins? Maybe I'm too mid-curve for this, but I just feel like everything I look at it just seems so scammy and it's just so hard to buy, but it pumps so hard. I'm like, oh my God, like what am I doing? Uh,
1: <laughs> so I-, I think this is where you really need to start speaking to the team uh, and you really need to roll up your sleeves and look at the docs and do proper due diligence. Um, this is where, and even if you don't, right, I think there's one particular name that I won't go into that a lot of people are very optimistic about. Um, where, uh, I, I don't really think that there is enough under the hood, uh, for it to be a long lasting, sustainable position for a lot of colored institutional funds. Um, and I'm actually more optimistic about the coin, uh, about the projects that have yet to release coins. Um, I think there are a couple that are coming to market, um, that, you know, it could be like Jensen for, for example, altogether or there's um, one AI company that we invested in as well that is building, uh, I'm not sure whether you know of Scale AI, which is this um, Web2 uh, data training uh, platform that basically helps uh, Web2 companies improve their data models uh, via uh, iteration of of data training sets. And it's a decentralized version of it. So it's called Sahara. So I think a lot of these things can actually be improved using Web three functionalities or the Web three architecture, uh, but it's in such an early inning that even if you don't have anything material and you're like you have a white paper and you're still trying to push it out, the market is so so giving that the, you know your token is just going to pop. So that that is that is the phase we're in 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 AI, and we could have sort of the uh, what do you call it the Uh, burst of the bubble moment for AI where people realize everything is vaporware and nothing is really real yet. And, you know, nobody can compete with like ChatGPT, for example. Uh, It could happen somewhere down the road, but, you know, I I think that's a dip for buying.
0: Yeah, I definitely need to look into AI stuff. And I kind of just want to go back to, you know, this this substack you wrote. And we talked about this two years ago, but I think some points are still applicable um, to you know, a mental primer um, to optimize for decision-making efficiency.
1: Oh, I haven't read uh, this myself in a while. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I just like skimmed through this like uh, last night, but, you know, you talked about, you know, simplification is key. Um, for 99% of investors, annual performance can be attributed to two to three specific decisions. Uh, can you kind of go over some of, I guess, the core takeaways from this article um, that you think will be beneficial for you know, our audience today?
1: Yeah. So I think this i think this ties as well into your question about if you were in crypto, if you are new to crypto today, how would you try and make it? And I think that the two, okay, the three most important decisions you make for your PA throughout the cycle is number one, when do you decide to go full risk long? That is number one. Number two is how much leverage do you use, if at all? And number three, is when you decide to go full risk off and never look back. These are the three main decisions that will drive whether you make it or not in the next cycle. And I think most people have problems, don't have problems with the first one, which is when to go risk long, uh, when to go max long. Uh, I think it's quite easy for a lot of people to start seeing the gains that a lot of people have been making, see prices go up, and then start putting their money into uh, putting their capital to use. Uh, I think the second one on leverage uh, is where I think a lot of people cannot really control the greed that they have, right? Um, uh, Most people don't start with pretty conservative amounts of dollars. You know, the dream is to make $10,000 go to a million dollars. For example, how do you get there? You know, you can find a hundred X or you can find a 10 X and just go 10 X long there, right? So uh, I think that is a very dangerous trap. I personally advocate never using leverage. Um, across almost any situation, uh, I think the risk just isn't worth it. Even if you do like funky, long short cross collateral nonsense, I still prefer to keep it simple. Uh, and the last one is actually where most retail investors struggle and really give back a lot of their gains, which is when do you decide to call it a day, take risk off the table and not buy back it. And that is probably the hardest decision as well, because you basically have to call cycle top, uh, you almost always will be wrong unless you can perfectly time the Pico top. So you, for a period of time, you would say, okay, I'm done. And then prices will continue to pump. And so you feel formal, that's that's typically what happens and then you're like, okay, maybe I was wrong. And then you rebuy back higher and then you end up aping the top and then you give everything back. Or maybe you are correct, right? Uh, you did call the cycle top. Uh, but then you can't resist buying the dip because you've been ingrained through like twelve months of price action where every dip buy just gets rewarded endlessly until it's like burnt into your neural interface and then you realize that this dip doesn't just keeps on dipping and then you basically just give back everything that you made uh, on that as well so I think these three in these three decisions uh will it will drive say 80 to 90% of your performance and will really allow you to look back on a cycle and say, did I do well throughout that cycle?
0: Yeah, for sure. I I think, you know, when you mentioned, you know, this dip that just keeps on dipping, I'm reminded of, I think there was like a 12 week period in 2022 where ether was this red, like the, Ether weekly candles were red twelve straight weeks. Yeah, and that 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 I mean that was brutal. Like anyone that survived through that, like congratulations. Like you know, we we all deserve to make it at this point. Yep. Um, and going back to, let me just re- to share. You talk about discipline, um and you know, like one thing that I think has helped me is I've started a journal recently, um where you know, because l- let's say you hold a coin and it's pumping, it's I think it's useful to write down whatever your emotions are um and sometimes i see myself saying okay like two months ago this coin was pumping i'm so euphoric um it's gonna keep going higher and then looking back i'm like what what the hell was i thinking um and i think the the important thing is like it's like all your analysis is worthless if you can't stick to the plan right like greed takes control over uh, your psyche you just keep buying the dip you just keep thinking it's gonna go higher um what do you think is one way to stay humble um, and, you know, like, take profits? Like, what are some mental rules that you set for yourself um, to make sure that you manage your risk?
1: So this is something that I, I grapple with um, quite a bit. I think uh, I have two different frameworks, uh, again, for the different timeframes that I trade. Uh, I think for the lower time timeframe, uh, this is typically on like the majors coins. I wouldn't really recommend this for like, you know, very small alt coins. Uh, I typically start taking profit after twenty percent, so like just almost. I I don't break this rule in almost any situation, um, and then you just basically set uh, trading limits up, or you set a trading stop if like you know you, you're more optimistic on where this can go. Uh, I think in that way you tep- you typically don't you never really capture like you never buy the bottom and you sell the top, right? But it's impossible to do that. But you make sure that you capture at least 50 to 60% of the move that you're hoping to make. Because if you're wrong, uh, you you almost certainly lose money on your trade, right? So that you don't really have to think about profit taking in that sense. If you're right, uh, you're going to have to maximize the amount of the spread uh, of the move. Uh, and hopefully the number is like, hopefully you can make more than 50% of it you can catch more than 50% of, of whatever move that you're hoping to make. Um, so that's in the trading book. On the spot book, I think it's much, much different. Um, we are um, a lot more thesis-oriented, meaning we it's either, number one, it's an evergreen position. So, for example, we are optimistic on Web3 Gaming, for example. And right now, uh, just for disclosure, we hold uh, IMX and Ronin. Right? Uh, there are a couple of smaller-term catalysts. Uh, that we expect for both coins. But in general, they are evergreen positions because they are the best proxies to gaming right now. Uh, And we do expect as more people, you know, start re-embracing Web3 Gaming, these coins are going to get consistent flows uh, as the default name for either institutions or larger players to buy. So in this case, um, I would be, I would invalidate that position if I think This has run way, way too much, way, way too high above what I consider fair value. Uh, Or um, when we decide to call, uh, make a beta call and just cut positions across the board. Uh, I think for the longer term positions, I would, I much more, I much prefer to de-risk from a beta point of view, as opposed from a specific coin point of view. So I would rather say, okay, um, I think the market's a bit too overheated, I'm going to cut risk by 30%. And then through all my positions, I cut 30% indiscriminately, as opposed to saying, okay, you know, I think IMX is run, uh, maybe, you know, I think I'm a bit more optimistic on Ronin versus IMX or vice versa, and then you cut the other one. Uh, Usually, those kind of decisions don't typically play out as perfectly as you you would uh, want
0: yeah, and it's interesting how, because in some of my circles, uh, you know, myself included, uh, I feel like gaming is a really difficult sector to, I guess, invest in. Um, and you mentioned IMX and Ronin, which are both gaming L1s, let's say, yes. or L2s. Yeah. Like, do you think that it's going to get flows just because, oh, it's a gaming chain. Oh, if I want exposure to gaming, I'll buy the gaming chain. Like, Do you think that's you're trying to front-run those types of flows? um, Or is there anything specific about, I guess, IMX and Rodin uh, that makes it more attractive than, let's say, Prime or Ori or Shrapnel, etc.?
1: So the thing about um, the specific gaming titles is that you really have to be very in tune with the virtual gaming economy uh, and the game itself in order to make these kind of predictions. And there are going to be so many games that uh, we'll be hitting market next year. We don't have, but like, we're not full-time gaming, gaming investors. So we, we know that this is not our specialty. And so we are not in the business of trying to predict which games are going to take off, right? But right now uh, across the market, there are basically only two ecosystems in games left, right? It's either you're on IMX because, you know, IMX just you know sort of semi-acquired beep. Um, so it's really just IMX. And then there's Ronin as uh, a sidechain. chain nothing really else uh so if one of these uh platforms has a hit game we do expect some sort of trickle outflows to come down to it um and in general the these gaming l1s are nowhere near as expensively valued as the monolithic l1s or the you know of most of your other elements are out there so in general as an l1 we think it's pretty undervalued uh, on a comparison basis and then you have we, we do expect um with the multitude of games that are coming out, more attention going to GameFi, and we really haven't seen like in, in we've been like promised a great game with good virtual economies for the longest time. We haven't seen it come out yet. I do think twenty twenty four is really when we start seeing a lot of these things come out.
0: Got it. And when you look into L ones, um, this is always a question I like to ask. How do you think about valuations? You just mentioned relative valuations. So IMX is X percent the market cap of this chain, uh, it's cheap. Um, or is that kind of how you think about it? Or like in my experience, I just feel like it's so hard to value these L1s um, and people like to just value it against Ethereum. Um, Ether's market cap, but how do you think about the alt L1 trade? Um, and which vertical do you think has the most potential for, let's say, 2024 for for uh, L1s?
1: So this one is very challenging. I honestly don't have a great answer. Um, I Right now, we still use... Um... Relative valuations to drive most of what we deem as cheap or expensive um, for the simple reason that if you look at the fee numbers that they are generating, then nothing makes sense anymore. Right. And Solana is trading at probably a hundred thousand price of sales or some ridiculous number like that. Right. So uh, it doesn't really matter as much. Um, you, even if you look at like, for example, TVL uh, to FTV or TVL to market cap, uh, we we were looking at. Uh, actually, I'll tell you a great story on how I got something wrong, uh, which was Solana at the start of this year. Uh, we were consistently looking at Solana, speaking to founders within Solana um, as F- after FTX went, went down. And then we were trying to determine, is this ecosystem dead and gone? Is it not coming back? Um, obviously now it's pretty easy to say in hindsight, it's not the case, and that was the bottom. Uh, but at the time, TVL was declining uh, founders were moving off Solana, uh, you had every reason to be uh, bearish, the ecosystem, in terms of developer quality, in terms of TVL, every fundamental metric, even like there were some USDC versions on Solana that had no liquidity and it was trading out of whack. All these things were breaking down, right? And Then you had Jump leaving the uh, ecosystem as well. But what I realized was these fundamental numbers that we looked at. So in the end, the answer was we did the work. We concluded that the fundamentals were declining or deteriorating. And so we didn't build a position in Solana. What I failed to realize was in this particular situation and in many L1 situations, price leads fundamentals, not the other way around. So you cannot really look at a chain and look at the fundamentals and say, okay, this is fairly valuable. Or like the TVL is going up, so the price should go up. It's not the case, it's the other way around. The TVL is going up because price has gone up, uh, even if you exclude for like you know the native uh, unit currency, um, it's always reflexive and always driven by price. So, this was the mistake and, and the lesson I learned at the start of this year. So, when you take that into account, you the fundamentals of a chain don't really matter anymore if you're, if you're trying to use it as a predictor of a price, right? So I think ultimately what happens um, or what is the most useful thing for price is if you think you need to be able to find an idea or a shelling point that, you, that the market will accept but has yet to accept. And I think a perfect situ- example right now is what's happening with C on the parallel EVM uh discussion that has really taken CT by storm in literally the last 24 hours. Uh say so it's been live for a couple of months, right? And this uh their the parallel EVM announcement came out call kind it of a month ago. So this isn't anything new. Uh and one day and the market has been ignoring it because basically other coins have been bumping, you know, there's other attention uh you know exciting things going on elsewhere. And then one day out of nowhere, you know, People just realize, oh, you know, this is a narrative that is pretty interesting. Uh, parallel EVMs could, you know, materially improve the quality of life and the uh, efficiency of, you know, uh, applications on Ethereum. So all of a sudden you have a massive rating on, on say, and I don't know whether this is, you know, overheated or not, uh, but your, our job as, as price speculators is to think of what, the market may like in the future, and position yourselves ahead of time. Um, So I think this is just one example, I think Celestia is another perfect example of how people didn't really know how to value something when it first launched, you had ample time to get in. And once enough sort of KOLs started preaching about data availability and the fact that nobody knows how to value data availability then you just, have, you just have, you know, ridiculous price action.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. And you mentioned something along the lines of, you know, you have to predict what the market is going to like next, and then you kind of have to predict these narratives, which is, you know, of, of course, easier said than done. And yeah. I wanted to ask a question around the ether, um, because I think a lot of this L1 run, is the result of people's frustration with ETH. Um, so, I mean, two years ago, I was a big proponent of the Alt-O1 trade, right? Like I just saved Polygon, Avalanche, et cetera. Um, and that was because, you know, I was an early user of DeFi, Ethereum gas fees are way too high. I said, you know, like, fuck this, I'm going to a cheaper chain, you know, Polygon, et cetera. Um, and two years later, I mean, I still feel like people are still frustrated with the Ether experience. Um, what what are your views on ETH? A lot of people think that you know ETH is going to pump a lot because you know it's the second largest coin, but there's also this narrative around ETH is the atom of this cycle, where it's trying to be money, but it's not like good money compared to Bitcoin. It's not as good. And then on the scaling front, it doesn't scale as a monolithic chain like Solana. Like, what are your views on either as a chain and as an asset?
1: If you think about, let's say having a bearish view of on ETH because the fees are very high when the chain is congested. I think that argument doesn't hold at all. Uh, if you look at BRC20s right now, people are paying $50, $100, $200 for inscriptions uh, on Bitcoin, and they're waiting 30 minutes per block or something ridiculous, and, and everything is booming. Why is that? Because there is the promise of greater profit. Right. And I think the reason why ETH is suffering so much is because it's been so long since you've had the promise of profit on ETH. Um, and I think when that returns in some form or another, uh, that's where people quickly forget about the negative aspects of ETH and then people realize how reflexive ETH can be. Uh, I think right now ETH is suffering from a couple of things. I think number one is still getting pretty harsh flows from Celsius, if I'm not wrong. Uh, I think they're still selling. Um, I think in the form eight in in the range of like eight eight to nine figures a day, or something along those lines. So it's it's still suffering from pretty negative flows. Um, I think right now it's also in that awkward spot of being too large, such that crypto, crypto native funds can't really push the price, and being too small for institutional funds to really take an interest in. We were speaking to a uh, one of the institutional desks uh, out of the states, uh, and we were asking them about their color PDC and ETH. And interestingly, um, we are basically asking them why. Uh, Is TradFi all of a sudden so interested in Bitcoin? Uh, And the reason was actually because uh, Bitcoin as an asset is liquid enough for them to deploy their strategies and decorrelated enough from equities such that they can have delta hedged or delta neutral strategies working in tandem with their TradFi strategies. Then I asked them, why couldn't they do this for ETH? And they were like, this ETH is literally too much of a shitcoin. Uh, for them to do this. So they are not buying ETH because it's too illiquid. That is the answer. So what ends up happening is only your crypto native guys are buying ETH, but everyone in crypto is poor relative to the huge wealth funds uh, on the institutional side of things. So we can't really move ETH the way that we want to. Um, I think at some point, uh, once enough of the stars online for ETH uh, in the form of potentially an ETH ETF uh, somewhere in maybe Q1 or Q2 next year, um, there could be this change. But I will say that when that change comes, um, it will be very reflexive and ETH is going to giga ball. I just don't know how long more it cucks at this <laughs> range. Um, I too am an ETH bag holder, I am not a happy camper. Uh... So, yes, this may be cool.
0: Yeah, I know. Like, you know, I, I do another podcast with Jordy, Jordy Alexander, and he has yeah. this idea around community money. And I think Ether is community money. Like, no one knows how to value it. You can use PE ratios, but I don't really think it's that useful. Um, yeah. But if people make a bunch of money, eventually all that money rotates to Ether. Um, and I think all crypto natives hold some amount of Ether. Um, and if there's not enough new money coming in and there's new narratives pumping up here and there, like what do people sell to buy these shit coins so that they don't sell USDC because people are already fully allocated, they sell ether. Um, so I feel like ether is like the source of funds that goes into all these, like, I guess, micro narratives. And it's just like suffering as a result. And maybe when retail actually, retail flow just comes in in like waves, I think maybe, you know, all that bid can go into ether and whatnot. Um, But do you think that's like a good assessment? You know, it's like ETH BTC maybe is like a good barometer of, let's say, the average wealth of crypto natives. What do you think about that type of idea?
1: I've never actually thought about it from from that point of view before. But I I, I will say that I think the lackluster ETH price performance is also another indicator that retail really hasn't come in yet, right? Because as you said, most crypto natives are very familiar with ETH you would have, I think the first thing you do if you risk on is you buy ETH, right? You either buy BDC or you buy ETH. Um, So you don't have that much, uh, like the marginal buyer that is sidelined is not really going to be buying ETH anymore. They're going to be trading that ETH for whatever shitcoin that they want to buy. Um, So there is that. And and one one more thing on ETH is, I think in the past two cycles, they have had uh, insane demand cases for ETH I think in 2017 and 2018 it was the ICOs that were denominated in ETH Uh, in 2020 and 2021 it was NFTs that were all denominated in ETH as well right and these were like the primary drivers of like retail adoption in both cycles right and this cycle we haven't really got it yet Um, it may be in the form of NFT resurgence it could be something else Uh, but right now uh, why do you need to own ETH as of today. And the answer is you don't really need to. And until you do, and until the US institutional problem is solved of of it being too small, you're just going to be stuck in this chicken and egg limbo case for a while. But that can change at any moment. Once if let's say, uh, I think a lot of people are predicting once the BDC ETF approval is done, that will be the bottom for BDC and ETH is going to start to move. I Initially was off that camp, um, I'm slowly beginning to doubt that a little more just because of how many people are yelling that from the mountain top and absolutely how much, how disappointingly ETH has traded in spite of everyone saying that. It really basically means that a lot of people are already positioned for this and it's not moving. So, no, I don't have a strong view on this one. I think it could go either way, but I'm not, I wouldn't be placing, you know, heavy bets on this.
0: Yeah, I think you know, Donald the Duck mentioned this, but you know, if you expect the Bitcoin ETF to be some sort of sell the news, then that's catastrophic for Ether as well, because you know, the, the ETF narrative, it's not going to be that strong if the Bitcoin ETF was sell the news. Um, so, and you know, if the Bitcoin ETF is bullish, then you know, people will like, just bid Bitcoin. And I definitely agree with the fact you know, when you said that when it comes to the ethereum ecosystem there's like no promise of greater profits and if you think about what i'm like honestly the only thing i use eth for is to airdrop farm i just take eth i bridge it across yeah. new chains i stake it in eigen layer i have some in blast manta network that, that's like eth is like the airdrop coin you know like i don't even i mean I, I guess i view eth as money in the sense that if i do make a bunch of money in another place all that money will eventually go back to ether at some point um, But yeah, there's, yeah, like nothing in the Ethereum ecosystem has a promise of great profits, at least with Solana, there's airdrops, meme coins, even the Cosmos ecosystem, there's airdrops, Um, and I think that's more attractive to retail flows, Um, maybe maybe even crypto natives, um, people are slowly coming to the fact that maybe ether is not the fastest horse.
1: So I I actually think that there's a real, there's a specific reason for this, and it's because there is nothing new that has been introduced to crypto. I think really since, call it Step N, or before that, call it GameFi, or before that, call it NFTs, right? In the last cycle, you had a couple of different, I would say, earmarked events that showed you something completely new, showed you something that could deliver you huge profit potential. In this cycle, we have seen almost zero innovation that has come to market yet. I think a lot of projects are building, uh, but in terms of products that have hit the market, they are almost none, right? And for that reason, uh, and I don't think this is actually isolated to Ether alone. Even you know on Solana, uh, the reason why Solana is getting so much hype is because the projects on it, the sort of the ghost chain projects on it that, that launched two years ago, are finally realizing they can launch it open now. And so all the airdrop hype is coming back and that may be enough, right? To start kickstarting, uh, increase in activity again, you know, sort of getting that, that, that cold start problem off the ground for Solana again. Uh, but there's really nothing organic, right? Um, I would have expected, or I would have wanted to see, uh, maybe a new game, for example, that could be sustainably played from a play to perspective, or I could have maybe seen something like, uh a different variation of Frentech, right? Okay, Frentech was actually something that was net new, but it eventually flopped because of a broken model. Something sort of a V2 for Frentech, I think, would be very interesting, right? Because then you would have a net new concept again, uh, this time on ETH, right? And if it really hits, it takes off and hits critical mass, not just for Web3 guys, but for the general Web2 participant, there you go, there's your ETH driver, right? Because everyone is going to bridge by ETH, get on this thing, that you're gonna have you know, one of the strongest drivers for flows or ETH that you don't yeah. see yet.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. Something just has to happen in the Ethereum ecosystem that's so new and novel that we just yeah. see crazy inflow of retail just buying ETH for the first time, bridging to base chain or whatever chain, uh, downloading some app or creating, you know, like creating MetaMask wallets, and who knows? Like, I mean, crypto, like. Things happen when you least expect it. Um, like I also missed, where I was also wrong on the, like, I guess, Solana. Um, I wasn't bearish. Uh, I went to hackathons and stuff, but you know I didn't really see a path, especially with, I guess, Galaxy that, like, selling all those FTX uh, Solana. But, I mean, I think the market is starting to show its hand that like, maybe the monolithic thesis has legs, uh, and the modular thesis maybe is led by Celestia and the Cosmos ecosystem. And then if that's the case, then where does ETH go, you know? um, But I guess, you know, enough talk about, or enough bashing on our bags, AKA ether. Um, let's more talk about some questions, uh, more, I guess, broad, um, I call them you know, rapid fire questions. But um, first question I have for you is, what are some common traits of successful traders that you see? You know, you've seen people blow up, um, you know, definitely you've seen people blow up. Uh, some people just make it, you know, like, what makes them successful, and how does and how do they differentiate from people that maybe are not so successful?
1: Um, I think in terms of so I think in terms of like very very sharp traders, I think the ability to respond well under very high pressure is something I notice elite traders can do. Uh, And unfortunately, this is not something I think that can be easily learned. It's either you have it or not. It's like something to do with your fight or flight instinct. Um, If you have it uh, as a viewer, great. Practice it, hone it. Uh, Recognize that it is a skill that is very important and can make you a lot of money uh, if you get it right in the right moments. Um, If you don't have it, that's fine. Recognize you don't have it and don't try and force it Uh, because that will likely lose you quite a bit of money Um, I think for on a more broad term uh, I think the most important thing is the ability to recognize being wrong I think that will save you from so much pain Uh, and the ability and it will also result in you not marrying to your bags right I think one of the main reasons why Uh, so many people round-tripped and gave back everything they had and more in the last cycle was because they were promised or they had this sort of deep belief that their coin would make it to the next cycle. Their coin was special. And unfortunately for 99.9% of coins, it was, unironically, not special. So uh, being able to recognize that you're wrong, uh, cutting your positions and taking a loss, I think, is... One of the hallmark traits of a excellent investor.
0: I keep talking about this book that I've been reading. It's called "Best Loser Wins," uh, where everyone knows how to win, right? Like if they win, they just feel great. Um, You know, like they're the best trader in the world. But whenever they're in the red, it's like they don't know how to take a loss, right? Like they don't know how to be wrong. They don't know how to admit that they were wrong. And that's this is something I'm trying to get better at as well. Um, Especially because my, I guess, trading style is. More medium to longer term driven, where I develop a thesis and I just have to be patient, let things play out. But in the short term, maybe things are happening where it's like, oh, it doesn't look so good, uh, or you know, like other narratives look a lot sexier. Uh, what yep. do I do? Um, but you know, I, I think you just have to be humble and be self aware. You know, like, figure, like check your biases. Um, so speaking, of which like, how do you how how, how would you characterize your trading style? Um, I mean, I, I know you talked about. Short term and medium term, but like like generally, like how how would you describe it? Uh, yeah, to your. So opinion, I think why not?
1: I'm more lower time frame than I would like to admit. Um, I think I really enjoy trading in that sort of one month time frame type of zone, and so really in situations like the last two months, I've been having a field day uh, moving from coin to coin. Um, but I would say that I prefer concentrated bets. Um, I size pretty aggressively um, when I do fire bullets, uh, but I cut losses really quickly. So my drawdowns on my losses are far smaller um, than my wins. Uh, I may have more losses because of this, uh, but I think that's how it keeps me in check in terms of never ever uh, losing more than I'm supposed to. Uh, And I think I like to, it's, it's very similar to, I guess, poker when you're on a heater. Uh, I typically tend to keep playing uh, more and more. Uh, but once I hit a cold streak, uh, I just basically get my hands off the trading desk. Uh, so always look to reset once you've hit, uh, you know, a couple of losses in a row. Uh, maybe take two, three days off, don't touch anything. Uh, and then when you come back, size smaller, get your mojo back up. Uh, and then go with the flow as you slowly get your, get your groove back. Uh, and then start sizing up better again. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think trade, I mean, even investing, like trading and investing or anything that has to do with the markets, it's mostly a psychological battle between you and yourself, right? It's like, yes, yes, you're competing with other people technically, but at the end of the day, you're just competing with yourself. You know, you have your biases, you have you know, your fight or flight response, which might not bode well, especially when you know, you're trading emotions and whatnot. Um, so you, you mentioned some mistakes, right? Uh, where, you know, some people or some mistakes people make of, I guess, not admitting when they're wrong. What, what are some other, I guess, popular mistakes that you see um, that you think you, know, you want to share uh, with our audience today?
1: I think one is counting your chickens before they hatch. So, I see uh, a lot of people when actually this is more so from like a, uh, you, this is not so much from an investing point of view, but more so from a portfolio management point of view. Uh, I, see, I saw a lot of people make, you know, five, 10, $20 million in the last cycle. And they started changing their lifestyle pretty drastically uh, as a reflection of their newfound wealth. Um, I really r- wouldn't recommend that um, to me. I always think of crypto, whatever I have in crypto as literally points on a scorecard. Um, to me, like it helps me the most when I think of it, not as money, uh, but as a scorecard. And so the goal is to increase that number, right? And you increase it through a multiple different ways. And if the, the, the scorecard goes down, you know, it's fine. You suffer a beating. Uh, take a break. Get back to it again. Uh, but until dollars reach your bank account in fiat, that money is not real money. Uh, and I think a lot of people made the mistake of assuming that they are angel bags that they would unlock in like a year or so was real money, and they sort of you know thought, okay, maybe if I angel angel in something and it's worth five million dollars today, uh, you know I can go and buy a car or buy something. Uh, something ludicrous, so like buy a new watch that costs a hundred k for some, for example, and this never turns out well. Uh, because number one, you get used to a much more opulent lifestyle. Uh, and when the markets turn against you, all of a sudden you have bought a lot of shit that you probably didn't need. Uh, and now you're feeling like crap because now you're no longer a winner in the markets. Uh, and you know you may have unnecessarily put yourself in debt. So. Uh, My rule is very simple, until the dollars reach your bank account and you've paid your taxes on them, it's not real money. That way you won't go wrong.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I think one of the Lau brothers, I think Darren Lau or yeah, uh, one of the Lau brothers said that like, let's say you're entering the markets for for the first time and you have some number goal, right? Let's say, I mean, let's just say it's like a million dollars or something. Um, Let's say you achieve that goal. one of the things that he said was, if you hit your goal, let's say you turn 10K to like a million, just put a million literally in your bank account and sit on it for a month, right? Just realize, just just feel it, feel it in your bones, like all, all this money that you hopefully make. Um, and like, what, why do you need to, I, I mean, and if you withdraw money from crypto, I feel like it's really hard to like deposit the same amount of money back. Um, and if you run 10K to a million, just deposit 10K again and then see if you can do it again. Um, maybe that doesn't apply to like a lot of people like I mean you know 100x is like very difficult it's easier than something done, done. Um, but I think the mentality of just feel something right so, like, put the money in your bank account feel it and then if you want to put it back then yeah you can do so the markets are always going to be here um, so, ne- so ne- next question I have oh yeah sorry go for it
1: actually I I, I want to push back on that a little bit because um, I, I think that there's a variation of that that's probably more optimal which is probably taking 50% out and then keeping up the other 50% and rolling it uh, continuously and the reason why I say this is because if you have exhibited the ability to 100x your portfolio, it means you are likely in the top 1% of traders out there or investors out there, which means that you probably are plus EV and you probably should be continuing to do what you're doing. Uh, that being said, uh, if you have a hard rule, for example, to withdraw 50% of whatever you make once you hit what your goal, uh, you have guaranteed you know, call it 500k in the bank, and that's life changing money for a lot of people, right? Yeah, uh, but right. also allows you to keep rolling with the successful strategy that you have for the other 500k, and then you have a chance to keep rolling it and maybe make two, three, five, ten of with that as well.
0: Yeah, you, you just have to lower the risk of ruin, right? Uh, in crypto, it's just, if you go bust, you're you're screwed. Uh, <laughs> if you have some capital, there's always a chance. Um, yeah. Like, what are some uh, what are some, I guess, biggest misconceptions about the crypto markets uh, that you see um, that other people say that you think you disagree with? Uh, yeah, if, if you don't mind sharing.
1: Biggest disagreement. So I think, and this is a bit more cynical because I'm a bit more low time frame. It's don't allocate capital based on where you think Based on improving fundamentals, I think if you look for fundamentals uh, and you place bets on that, you are going to realize that markets don't really care about fundamentals for ninety percent of the time. In certain situations, they do, uh, mostly when catalysts are in play that include the fundamentals, uh, but. Nine times out of ten, the fact that GMX is trading under DYDX uh, on a multiple point of view, nobody gives a shit. Right? That that multiple that that that, that gap is not gonna close um, for you know XYZ reason, even if you think GMX is better, for example. Um where the money is made, once again, is predicting what you think will be the hot ball narrative before it happens. And when you find it, uh, really size up on it. I think it's very hard to do, but uh, I think for me, I've only done it two or three times in my career, but when you find it, you will know that you found it uh, because it will be crystal clear to you uh, when everyone else is in doubt and then you just size up and you don't let go because most of the time these things go run a lot, lot harder than what you think can happen.
0: Yeah. I, I think it's like a Miller quote. It's just, you know, like when you know you're right, you just go for the jugular. Uh, when you're
1: no, no size is too large basically.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it, it definitely applies if it's, if the markets are liquid enough, right? Uh, yes. There, there is a, there, there is such a thing as too, too big if the market is Omega illiquid, and you can't really get out of your position. Um, yeah,
1: uh, of it, yeah. I have to caveat this with uh, no constraint by no leverage. So, size up to one x your book.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. Just speaking of sizing up, uh, like, I, I guess you already mentioned AI, um, BRC twenties, and other L ones. Like, what 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 like what what plays? especially already bullish on feel free to i mean it's almost christmas right like we all this like the audience wants some christmas alpha (laughs) like like do you think there's anything that uh, is a pretty no-brainer bet uh, that we haven't already talked about in 2024 uh caveat caveat this with like no leverage you know like medium term time horizon etc but
1: yeah uh that's interesting um I think the, I think you could see some form of uh, DPN renaissance, although we haven't done, you know, all that much work there. Um, I, I th- Honestly, besides BRC20s and AI, I don't have particularly strong views, mostly because uh, I think what is going to come is going to surprise everyone. Right? I think six months ago, if I told you what BRC20s were you look at me you completely confused, right? So um, most of the time we're keeping an element of the book in cash or in ETH, ready and waiting for net new opportunities that arise. Uh, I don't pretend to try and know what these things are going to be. Uh, All I hope to do is when I see a spark of fire, I quickly rush in um, and air fuel to that fire. Uh, I think that is, because I think if, let's say you do a lot of deep research on, call it, let's say LSDs, for example, which is a pretty interesting, pretty new concept, uh, you know, makes your capital a bit more efficient uh, with ETH, uh, it gets you a better of yield, yada yada. Uh, you do a lot of work on understanding the market structure. You do a lot of work understanding the, you know, let's say the, the market leader strength of Lido, for example and you take a position in LIDO, betting on a re that potentially can happen, you would just be sitting holding your balls for the longest time as narrative after narrative pumps, uh, and nobody gives a crap about this vertical. So you may be right, right? Uh, and at some point, it, this thing could 2-3x, uh, but I think the opportunity cost and the mental cost of paying attention to it, uh, being in anguish as your position underperforms is not worth the risk, really. Um, I'd much rather be be in dollars, Uh, just really in waiting, right? Just everyday observing the market, seeing what is net new. And I think the answer, the the two things I would always look out for is, is is this a game that other people have never played before? If the answer is yes, then you're onto something. And then the next question you're supposed to ask yourself is how big can this dream get? Right. Uh, so I think for LSDs, for example, the dream is, well, it's really right there already, right? Lido has like 30% dominant market share on the on the LSD side. You can't really grow all that much. I mean, the market can grow, but then you're you know you're just a proxy for the for the LSD market. So it's like maybe 10, 15% a year or whatnot. So the dream is not very big. Um, and this is why I think AI and BRC20s uh, are really going to be strong outperformers because in these verticals, the sky is the limit. What is stopping your AI coin from going to 100 billion? I mean, on, WorldCoin is already at like, f- they hit 50 billion FTB, right? So, I mean, there is no stopping it. Could it go to 100 billion? Could it go to 200 billion? Could it be the first trillion dollar, I mean, maybe not trillion dollar, but you you get what I'm saying, right? That, that, the sky, there's uncapped potential upside. Um, so these are verticals that I prefer to operate in simply because it's a lot easier, uh, to bet on people's optimism for the future.
0: Interesting. So I guess instead of holding, let's say, you know, Lido, I mean, I I, I don't mean to shit on Lido, right. But, um, you know, like instead of holding Lido for long-term capital gains, you'd rather just sit in cash, just catch whatever narratives, you know, just that you think other people will get into. And do, do, do you kind of believe, like think of crypto as a trading vehicle um, to achieve, you know, mass financial returns? Um, or do you think that there's actual like value being created here? Uh, yeah.
1: I think in the long term there is, um, I think it will come in different forms than what we expect. Uh, in the short term, definitely so. Uh, like, for example, the Celestia re-rating from 2 billion FTV to 15 billion FTV. Did the tech improve by 7x? It did not. Right, It's literally the same thing. Um, so there was a massive wealth creation effect for the people who caught it early. Uh, but the value of the use case for Celestia has not changed at all. Right, It being introduced to the market was a step forward. But it at two dollars and it at fifteen dollars there is no change so um and this is why I think it is uh quite difficult uh for one person to do this alone in terms of like being able to deal with the low time frame and the high time frame stuff, which is why I let you know my partner typically handle the higher time frame stuff on the venture side because uh you require very different frameworks uh to tackle the different time frames. If you try and be a jack of all trades, I would say ninety nine point nine percent of people will probably do worse. I know of a handful of people that excel at both, but I can count with I think probably one hand how many people in crypto I know that are excellent low time frame traders and excellent high time frame investors. It's very rare.
0: Got it. So do you think? Yes, yeah, so I guess you're self-aware enough to say that, you know, like my edge is more short to medium term and I'll let Correct. my partner handle the long term stuff. And then you have two brains that's specializing in two different things. And you're trying to like maximizing the EV of, I guess, each vertical. Exactly. Uh, so I guess, I guess like, you know, you're implying that for newer investors or traders, it's really helpful to network, right? And just like meet people uh, that have sure. different Like skills and expertise, like how important do you think is networking? Um, And if someone is some anon with zero followers, how do they get to, you know, let's say 10,000 followers? How do they get into these group chats? Do you have any advice for those guys?
1: Yeah, I think think the most important thing um, is to be able to provide value to others. Um, And I see this, uh, I think last time it used to be a lot easier in the sense that you could come up with a thread of useful information. Uh, and package it nicely and provide it to people. I think now with ChatGPT, that edge is more or less diluted away. Uh, You typically have to be able to be of use to other people before you start getting followers. Uh, It could be you coming up with market calls that are right. Um, It could be you finding alpha on chain. It could be, uh, what's another example? uh, I mean, a couple of the the younger guys are like putting together info threads um, that are summarizing what the latest events that have happened over you know the last uh, few weeks in a particular vertical. I think those are quite helpful as well. Um, but if you ever want to grow a following, the number one thing that you have to focus on is how do I deliver value to people? And once you've sustained, once you've got an answer to that, the followers will come
0: yeah yeah i definitely agree um I, I think the best accounts like they just give value no, like not really expecting anything in return and then at some point they end up being right or their content goes yeah. viral um and yeah. then you know people remember that hey like this guy is you know this guy's not just click waiting this guy's for real um yeah. you know, like i respect this guy um so sure. i just want to wrap it up with a final question um like, what would be your advice? So given all the knowledge that you've accumulated, let's say over the past, let's say three, four years, if you had to give advice to your younger self, like, like hypothetically, right? Let's say like Daryl of three years ago is entering the markets right now. Okay, like what advice would you give your younger self?
1: Don't forget or remember to protect the people around you. I think a lot of people... Um, Crypto on your own can be a pretty lonely journey. If you have friends that are with you, it makes it that much more meaningful. Uh, and a lot of times, uh, your friends may exhibit, you know, may make mistakes. And sometimes it's your job to try and help them out. So I think when you can protect the people around you, I think that way you found much tighter and stronger bonds. Um. You are a generally a net positive for the space, which is pretty rare to see these days, given how many scammers and villains there are out there. Uh, yeah, I would say that.
0: Okay, awesome. Uh, I think that's that's good, right? Help others around you. Just don't always be selfish. Just be giving, etc. Um, well, thank you, Daryl, for taking the time. Uh, do you have any final words for? Our audience here, uh, I know words of wisdom. Anything you want?
1: Yeah, I think I think now, if if you're th- sort of seeing this video and you're you're about to dabble back into crypto after taking a break, um, I would say that now is as good a time as ever uh, to get back in. Um, I still think that in the grand scheme of the cycle, you are relatively early. Uh, that being said, um, you know, prepare for a lot of volatility. Uh, and once again, be responsible with uh, the amount of capital that you risk because I've really seen too many people risk too much. Uh, and the and the, the dollars that they risked actually mattered a lot to them in real life and they couldn't afford to to basically risk that.
0: Yeah, for every story where someone goes all in and gets 100x, there's like 100 stories of so someone's getting yeah. wrecked. That you never right. hear about. So exactly. there's, there's always survivorship bias there. All right. Well, thank you, Daryl. Um, hopefully, maybe you can do another pod in two years and <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about the same Substack article all over again. But I uh, appreciate you taking the time. Um, and hope, hopefully everyone enjoyed the episode. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you guys for watching. Cheers, man. And bye-bye.